starting today, I want to um, actually share with you a little bit about what I'm excited about with this series. Um, you, you know, uh, it's always hard to figure out as I'm praying and thinking of what to go through with you guys here uh, every, you know, every month, kind of trying to think of what, you know, where the next kind of step is for our congregation, where we're at, and uh, taking some weeks and, and some days to pray about that. And I want to give you a little bit, you know, peel back the layer a little bit of, of, of why I'm excited about what we're going to be getting into here. We're going to be going, we're going to be spending like the next eight months or so, I don't even know how long, but six, eight months, we're going to be going through um, Genesis, from Genesis chapters 12 to chapters 50. It is the, um, the story of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those stories in the, in the, in the Old Testament. And I'll tell you why I'm really excited about it. So I, I'm calling this series Patriarchs, The Faith and Failings of Our Fathers. Um, and then I have that little thing on the bottom, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I want to explain it a little bit of what I see in these chapters in Genesis. And then we're going to get into it today in, in Genesis chapter 12. But there's really four things that I really am praying about as we, as we start, as we go, to go study together through this part of the Bible. Uh, one thing is, as we go through these chapters, you're going to see these heroes of faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Aaron and Levi, all these heroes of the faith. But Genesis, the Bible does not present them as necessarily always doing heroic things. Uh, in fact, the Bible's pretty honest. The, in, in the Bible, there's one hero, and his name is Jesus. And when it tells stories of these other amazing people of the faith, it presents them as, yes, people of faith, but also presents them in their failings as well. And, and to a degree, that's good news. Uh, Richard, I want to explain a little bit about what you're passing out as you pass them out. Um, Richard is passing out uh, a little handbook I've made. I don't have enough handbooks for everybody. I, if you want a handbook, you like to take sermon. You like to take notes during the sermon. Just raise your hand, and Richard can give you one of those. Otherwise, I just have the opening and closing pages that Carol has, and you can give. I think you have those, Carol. You can give those to everybody else. But um, in those, uh, and, and we'll just try to pass those out as we go. But on the last page of that thing that they're passing out, I have these four kind of things that I'm praying about as we go through the series. Um, what kind of broke my heart as I was reading and beginning to prepare for this series was I was talking with a number of you, and, and I also was listening to some podcasts and different things, and one word kind of, kind of jumped out as I was talking with a number of you, and that was the concept of father wounds. It was the concept of these, this, this that I carry around because, you know, I, either my parents or the parents before them Somehow they've messed me up in some way, right? Like, and it was funny, I heard uh, something, uh, I was talking to somebody who's here, and we were talking about, I, I, I introduced this, ser this series last weekend at Easter, and I said, you know, one of the things that we're going to see as we go through the book of Genesis is how dysfunctional these families are, and we're going to talk about that, and it's hope because our families, you know, many of us come from dysfunctional families ourselves. And I heard somebody told me this week, and, and they didn't know who it was, but as I introduced that last week, somebody behind them said, oh yeah, my family's dysfunctional. And the other person was like, yeah, mine too. And it, so, so definitely uh, there's, there's hitting a nerve there of, of how we have carried these wounds around from these people in front of us, maybe even at times people of faith who were intending one thing but have... You know, and every family has some sort of measure of dysfunction. This series, I pray, will be a kind of, I hope, I mean, we might hit some of those raw nerves, but this is a call to faithfulness in those things and to see what God can do through those things rather than victimhood. Another reason why my heart was breaking, what I'm praying for as we begin this series, is we have a number of people in our congregation. We have a lot of people who are just starting families of their own, and as a parent myself, I, I know we worry and sometimes have sleepless nights over how am I messing up my kids? 
And make no mistake, as a parent, you are not a perfect person. You are a person of faith and you are a person of many failings. And yes, you will mess up your kids. It will happen. And I have to preach this to myself. I know it will happen. And so part of this is hope that God can do something even in our failings. Because one of the the themes of the book of Genesis is that this is a very dysfunctional family, this family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the theme of the book is that God is doing something that impacts the nations through this family. And that should give us hope. Third, I I just want to preach and and look into these chapters of Scripture because I don't preach the Old Testament. I haven't preached the Old Testament narrative the story a lot and so i hope we can grow as a congregation in understanding the story of the old testament and how to read these stories but ultimately my hope is that we will grow together in our appreciation of the glorious grace of our god and savior jesus like I'll use a phrase later today about how God can draw straight lines from crooked sticks. And that God can, God actually, so the main theme of Genesis, if you get, if you get nothing else, the main theme of Genesis, so in, in some of our classes we talk about how to study the Bible in some of our uh, upstairs adult discipleship. And one of the things that we talk about when we, when, we, when we talk about how to study the Bible is look at the beginnings and the endings of the books of Scripture. And Often, there will be a phrase that comes out, and and some books of the Bible are really nice. They say, this is why I'm writing to you. And you're like, great, thanks. Got that. Some of the books of the Bible are a little bit more subtle. And so you have to read carefully and read the beginning and the ends of the books and try to get what is the main point of the book. Well, at the end of Genesis, twice in the last few chapters of Genesis, you have this amazing story where Joseph's family, his brothers in particular, do horrific things to him. Horrific things to him. Well, you know the story of Joseph. We'll get to it if you don't know it. But they do horrific things to him. Over decades and twice in the last few chapters of Genesis, Joseph has the opportunity to confront his family. And his family thinks that Joseph is going to kill them like his family, the families, the brothers think this is Joseph's chance to get back at us. And twice in those last few chapters of Genesis, Joseph makes the statement that says, what you intended for evil against me, God has intended for good. What you have meant for evil against me, God has meant for good. And you understand that that's not only Joseph saying something profound to his brothers, But you actually understand that is the theme of the book of Genesis. That as God has created in chapters 1 and 2, God has created this amazing world that he declares very good. But in our turning away, we've made a mess of it. We have done whatever we can to be in our rebellion, to take authority from God and and, and to bring it up and to grasp it for ourselves. We have slandered and slaughtered each other. And you would think that humanity is just ready to be crumpled up and thrown out. But that phrase that comes at the end of the book that encapsulates the whole book, what what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And God takes these crooked sticks of our lives and somehow lines them up and makes a straight line toward his purposes. And that's what the book is about. And so that's what I'm really excited to get into with you as we go through this, is to look at these stories of crooked people who God is in the process of redeeming and through whom he's in the process of bringing about his plan. That's it. That's Genesis. And so we're going to look, go with me to Genesis chapter 12. And uh, that's where we're going to start today, just in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we'll start in verses 1 to 3. God's grace reaches into unlikely families. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. I can't underscore for you enough, I can't overstate how important these three verses are in the storyline of the Bible. While the story of the Bible obviously begins in Genesis 1, in the New Testament, the apostles Peter and Paul and Stephen, when they're preaching, they all, they don't go all the way back to Genesis 1. They all start with Abraham and this call in Genesis 12. And they say basically, here is where the history of God's redemption begins. Right? And they all, in Romans and in Galatians and in Hebrews and other parts of the New Testament, Abraham's called. These words to Abraham start this life of faith, this journey that in the New Testament becomes this paradigmatic model for all of our lives of faith, that God reaches into Abraham's life as an act of grace, which is paradigmatic. It's, it's what God does to each of us when he reaches into all of our lives by an act of grace. That's why Abraham is called the father of faith. So, so, so Abraham is presented to us as this first father of our faith. But before I get to Abraham, because some of you are le less familiar with the story of the Bible, let me kind of get you up to speed with what's happened in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, because we're jumping in at chapter 12. Okay, so the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I just have this picture up here for you so you can get a, a, an idea of what's happened so far, okay? So you can track along with us in the story. But in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates everything. He forms and fills it with light and life. He creates all that is, is created by him. And then in Genesis, end of Genesis 1 and into chapter 2, he creates humanity to both um, reflect his image and to respect his goodness. Right? So we're created, we as human beings are created special and unique of all of creation to bear God's image as we represent him and rule over and subdue the earth, but we are to respect his goodness. We are, we are dependent beings. We, we do not have an autonomy of our own. We are under this creator God who loves us, who cares for us, who provides for us, and who protects us. That is this picture of the world as it should be. But in Genesis chapter 3, what is shown is that our first descendants, Adam and Eve, were not, did not content themselves in reflecting God's goodness and respecting God's goodness, but they saw a way in which they could grasp that authority and that autonomy for themselves. And that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about, is that they would grasp, reach out their hands and grasp from themselves that they would be like God, they would be the pilot of their own destiny, and they would be the, those who declare what is good and what is evil. Instead of reflecting God's goodness and respecting God's goodness, they're grasping for themselves that moral autonomy. That it is I who is, who is the king of my domain. It is I myself who will, who will declare what is good and what is evil. And what happens when humanity does that? In Genesis uh, 4 to 6, it's this pattern, it's this cycle of violence and corruption and oppression, the same sort of violence and corruption and oppression that we see today when humanity refuses to reflect and respect God's goodness. And this cycle goes on, and it gets worse, and it gets worse in every successive generation until God reaches into human history and says, I'm going to wash it all away, I'm going to start it all new, and he preserves humanity through the person of Noah in this ark. And so after they get off the boat and that rainbow's in the sky, God reboots humanity. He washes it of, of its sin and of its depravity and of its oppression. He starts it again. And guess what happens again? The descendants of Noah get off the boat and start sinning again, start rebelling again, start, start, start rejecting 
and, and stop respecting and st stop reflecting this image of God. And they again, in their pride, turn away from God, in their pride, rebel against God. And in their pride now, they're scattered across the earth and they're filling the earth once again with violence and oppression and sin. And that's what happens when we get to Genesis chapter 12. It's this cycle again of humanity's rebellion. And now what is God going to do to preserve those in whom he has placed his image? Enter Abraham. Now, what do we know of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? Abraham is actually introduced, he's called Abram at this point. So I might, from now on I'm going to say Abram because that's what he was called at that time. But we're introduced to two things about Abram. One is that Abram uh, is an idol worshiper. Genesis 11, when it first introduces the family of Abram, it says these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. They lived in this place called Mesopotamia. They lived in this city, uh, this region called Ur in particular. Ur was famous for its worship of the moon god Nana. Nana, Nana, Nana. Okay? Ur was the center of worship for Nana. And jo Joshua, later in the Bible, Joshua tells us that. Abraham's family was of like mind and of like kindred with the people around them. So Joshua in Joshua 24, it says, Joshua said to people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So right away we know something about Abram. He is not a likely candidate to be the next deliverer. He's not, the likely, he's not a likely person through whom God is going to begin his process of restoring and redeeming humanity. I mean about Noah, it says in, in the description of Noah, it says Noah was righteous and blameless in his generation. It says the Lord looked and, and Noah found favor in the Lord's sight. But about Abraham, that's not said. It just says that God spoke to Abram. There, there's nothing in us. In fact, Joshua tells us Abraham is not a likely person to be the one through whom God will put his program of redemption. He is an unlikely candidate. He's an unlikely family. The second thing we know about Abram at this point, the only other thing we know about Abram in Genesis 11 leading up to Genesis 12, is Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkah. And this is the detail that's added. Now Sarai was barren and she had no child. Now why is that significant? It's significant because if you go back to that screen that I had a couple screens ago of what's happening in Genesis 1 to 11 you see that cycle of humanity rebelling and God restoring. But in that cycle, God has made a promise. In that cycle, at the first moment of rebellion, God makes a promise that there's going to be a son who comes and stomps on the deceiver's head. And he's called the offspring or the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, the Lord is speaking to the serpent, who's this embodiment of this rebel satanic rebellion. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, the offspring of Satan, and her offspring. And here's the promise. He shall bruise your head, while, and you shall bruise his heel. This is taken in the New Testament as the first promise of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, who's prophesied here, will be the seed, the offspring of the woman who will come to crush the serpent's head. And we know that this is the way that they understood this promise. In Genesis, it begins this program of looking for this son who's going to come. And the genealogies in Genesis are like these arrows bringing us forward in history 
to the next candidate of who is the offspring, the seed of the woman, who's going to come and crush Satan's head. And they're looking for him. And so what we're told about Abraham here is two things. Number one, Abraham is not interested in the program of redemption of the promise of Messiah because he's more, and his family's more interested in worshiping Nana, the moon god. And we're told that Abraham is a dead end as far as this promise of the seed of the woman is concerned because Abraham and his wife are very old and yet are barren and have no children. Abraham's family is an idolatrous dead end when you get to chapter 12. Abraham's family is not a likely candidate for this program of redemption to to be carried through. He is an unlikely family for God to speak into. And yet it's to Abraham and the Lord who God makes these unbelievable promises. I just want to stop here before I look at the promises. I want to be, before we go any further, how many of you in this room are either the first of the first generation of Christians in your family or your parents were the first generation of Christians in your family? Like, this is unreal, and it's, 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 it's amazing to look around this room and think, God's grace began in my family, either in me and my siblings or my parents. It's by far the majority in this church. And I look around my family, because I'm a first-generation Christian, and I look and I say, my family had nothing in it at all that was worthy or earned God's love and concern. My family were North American materialists, but we were worshiping the idol of things. We had no concern for God. And I have no idea why God chose to reveal himself to my sister first, and then to me, and then my mom, and then my dad, and now my brother. It's a miracle. And and I know many of you can look at your own family tree and go, we were idol worshipers, we had nothing to do with God, and suddenly my parents, for some reason, became these weird Christians. Or maybe it wasn't even your parents, and you're like, somehow God's grace reached into my life when I wanted nothing to do with him. That's Abram in this moment. Abram is not, and and here's the point, God's grace reaches in to these unlikely family, and God makes these crazy promises to Abram. Look at these promises God makes to him. This promises God makes is, is, like I said, probably the most significant passages regarding this promise of God, but I'm not even going to unpack it all today because, don't worry, it'll come up again in these stories. Right? We're going to get there. Whole chapters will be unpacking this. But today, just kind of look at these I wills. See these I wills? Look at these I wills that to this idolatrous dead end of a man God makes these promises. He says, first, I'll give you the promise of personal guidance. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land. I will show you. So a promise of personal guidance. He says, I will make of you a great nation. He says to Abram, here's a guy whose wife is barren. Who's, he lives in the time in history where this made sense. Right? In our time in history, it doesn't make sense that God would be like, Shane and Ingrid, I'm going to make you a great nation. And you'd be like, I don't get it. But Abraham's living in the time of history where he would look around and he would see cities and regional states founded by individual families. So he, would, he lived in Ur. There literally was a guy named Ur who was the king of this place that's then called Ur. Okay? And so Ur is like this gigantic metropolitan. It is the major city of the ancient world 2,000 years before Christ. It is, I just read a thing on Samaria. It was, it was the height of civilization, basically. And it's, it's founded by this guy named Ur and his family. And so Abraham's living in this time in history when if God were to say to you, I will make you a great nation, he knows what that means because he's seen it all around him. And he's like, that's got to mean I'm going to have a big family. So this is what God promises, this idolatrous dead end. I will make you a great nation. I'm going to skip the next one. I will make you a great name. 
So here's a promise of a claim. You're going to be renowned and respected and revered, Abram. Uh, I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. So you're going to have this influence where even those nations around you and peoples around you, their good is going to come through how they treat you, Abram. I'm putting my seal and my mark of preservation and protection upon you. And those who curse you, I will curse. So I'm going to fight for you, Abram. And in you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Imagine receiving these promises of God, of Abram. He's an idol worshiper. He worships the moon. And he's got a wife who can have no kids. And God's just saying, look, Abram, I'm going to do all this for you. And that's why I skipped over it, because I can only put it back together into one package where God says, Abram, look, I'm going to bless you. And God says, I'm going to do it. 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 And so get this in your mind. This is why Abram's the father of the faith. This is why this is the picture, as Paul says in Galatians, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abram. Because here God says to this idolatrous dead end, I'm just going to do this for you. I'm going to do this through you. To Noah... To Noah, God says, you've found favor in my eyes, go build a boat. To Abram, God makes no mention of any good in him, but, and God says, look, I am going to be your ark. These promises, this covenant I'm making with you, this, I'm going to build you a boat. I'm going to build you the ark, Abram. And this is the gift of grace. This is the gift of grace in the gospel. Not that we're found worthy of God, but that he bestows on us his worthiness by virtue of his grace. It's not that we are good. It's not that we are found righteous. It's that literally we are found unrighteous. But God says, look, I have done it in Christ. I have purchased salvation for you. I will bless you to be a blessing. These promises given to Abraham are applied to the church by faith. And this is the good news that, that your family right now may be the most unlikely place you could ever see God's grace working. And God may be speaking to you today in even this message, I have a salvation boat for you. It has been purchased, it has been paid for, it has been built up by Christ and the promises of God in him. He has purchased this by the shedding of his own blood when we talked about Friday, and he has demonstrated his worthiness and his victory and his resurrection from the dead. And this whole thing is here, this seal of redemption is set before you. It doesn't matter what your family has been up until this minute. God chooses the unlikeliest of families, and he chooses Abraham, an idol-worshipper, idol dead end, to set the promise of his grace upon. Second, God's grace calls us to a clean break from our past to follow his path. He calls Abraham to a clean break from his past to follow his path. He says, Abraham, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land. I will show you. God in his grace calls out to Abraham and he, and he gives him what he doesn't earn, he doesn't deserve. But his grace doesn't leave him where he's at. His grace calls him to a clean break from his past to, to total separation of all that he has known to set him on a new path and one that's unknown. And notice that God isn't bargaining with Abram. God doesn't bargain with him. This is an unconditional promise. I will do this to you, Abram. It's not a bargain. If you do this, I'll do this. Or if you do this, I'll do this. God says, I will do this. But the call to complete and total separation from his former life is non-negotiable. A non-negotiable call. Complete separation. The call is threefold. Abraham's to leave his country, his kindred, 
and his father's house. It's a clean break from the idolatry he's known, from the people he's associated with in that idolatry, and from the dysfunction of his father's house. He's called to leave it. He's called to separate from it, a clean break from it. This call to faith is the same call to discipleship that Jesus called out to each of us. And Man, you could go anywhere in the New Testament and anywhere in the Gospels. Hey, Peter, I know you work for your dad on the fishing boats. Lay down your nets and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Hey, Matthew, I see you at that table counting the taxes. Hey, Matthew, leave your country and your kindred behind and follow me. A guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I, can, I, can I wait until my father's dead? Let me bury my father. And Jesus says, no, you follow me. When the call comes, he says, follow me. That's what it's about when he says, if any man does not come to Christ and does not hate his father and mother, it doesn't mean you have to despise your parents. What it means is you see Christ in front of you and you see your parents behind you and his call is greater than their call. And you follow him. No matter what the cost, you follow him. The call to discipleship is non-negotiable. Leave your nets, leave your homes, leave your burdens, leave your sins, leave it all and follow me. There's people who say faith is a crutch. Right? You've heard that? People say, oh, faith, religion, it's just your, it's just your crutch. It's not the crutch. The call to discipleship is not the crutch. What the crutch is, is staying in your sin. What the crutch is, is staying in the life that you've known. The crutch is staying in the security of even though my family screwed up and has hurt me, at least it's better than what I don't know. The call to discipleship is this. You leave and you follow me. Well, where are we going? Well, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But you follow me. And there's hope in that. There's hope in that. And you all who have been carrying the burden of sin, you all who have the wounds of family, you all who have been weighed down by those, that life that has crushed you, you know that there's hope in leaving it behind and following this God that calls you to complete and utter death. Because in dying, we gain our life. It's a high calling, and you might say, well, I don't want to start this journey with God. And not, not because I don't know where it's going to lead. None of us know where it's going to lead, but you say, I'm not, I'm not strong enough, but, but God gives grace to this road ahead. And, and so Abraham sets out. He does. He, he sets out. And, and the, la, the next part of chapter 12 is a story of his faith, and it's a story of his failings, and God gives grace to make straight lines out of crooked sticks. See, we want this call to discipleship to be like this nice straight line of obedience and victory and success, but it's often not that, and we see that even here in Genesis chapter 12. So Genesis chapter 12, you can read with me. Genesis 12, verse 7. Ooh, where'd it go? So Abraham went. There it is, verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So, okay, there's another thing we know about Abram. Not only is it, was, he, was he an idol worshiper and was he a dead, and he's 75 years old. Colleen, I have to tell you, so many people came up to me and said, praise the Lord for your testimony last week. They did. And I praise the Lord because to have a, I don't even know how old you are, and I'm not going to say if I did, But for you to share last week what God is speaking to you as a member of our church who is in a more advanced age than many of our other members of our church. Can I say it? I hope I can say it that way. 
It, <laughs> it encouraged so many of us, young people, hear the call of God in your youth. But Abraham, 75 years old, he, he, he sets out. Abraham took Sarah, his wife, his lot, his brother's son, all their possessions they'd gathered, and the people they'd inquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Mereh. And at that time, Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord there, who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel in the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now Abraham does some really good things here. He does some, some faith-filled things here, right? Like he, he goes in obedience. He hears God's call. He sets out with his wife and his nephew, and most people think of his adopted nephew. He gets to the land to where God is showing him, and he pauses and he worships. He, he, he pauses and he worships and he hears God's voice there again. And, and God tells him, yes, you, this is it. This is right. You're tracking with me. This is the land I'm going to give you. And, and Abraham then worships God because God's now revealed to him. And, and some of you guys, I'm looking in this front row, a couple rows here. Some of you guys who are facing graduation, you know, when, when God gets you to the next point where you know what to do next, you're probably going to be like, I'm building an altar here and I'm worshiping him because I haven't been able to see it. And now I see it. And he builds this altar. And then he goes a little bit further into the land. He walks around to Bethel, another part of the land. And he, he, he makes another altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. And he, and he thinks possibly things are, are going well, and he keeps on moving through the land, and then he gets to this place called the Negev. And the Negev is this wilderness, this wasteland. It, it's, the Negev is called the, this wilderness because even in the best of conditions, it's a hard place to, to, get it, to, to scratch a living out of. And Abraham gets there, and suddenly uh, all this good that's been kind of accumulated by him walking by faith, suddenly the wheels start falling off. Now there is a famine in the land. So he's in Negev now, and there's a famine in the land. And now a mature follower of Christ might at this point go back to those places where he's seen God leading and guiding him. He might go back to Bethel and I to the altar there. He might go back to, um, he might go back to, uh, the first place he stepped, uh, the, the oak at uh, Momra. But Abram doesn't do that. Abram does what, what, what we might do. Abram freaks out. He freaks out. Right? This is for young Christians. You get this, right? You're like, I came to Christ. God showed his grace to me. And I'm walking by faith. And then sometimes a trial comes and you're like, ah, I'm out. And Abram runs to Egypt. He goes down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. And, and for us, that might not make a difference. For us, it might seem he's just keeping walking in the same direction. But if you're reading this like the people of Israel would have read this, you would have understood that what Abram does here, this is where he begins to freak out and lose the plot. Because Egypt, in Scripture, Egypt is the place of godless help. Egypt is brought up again and again through the Old Testament where the children of Israel are tempted to go back. They're, they're facing a trial like, the, for example, the Assyrians are coming in and surrounding Jerusalem, and they're facing a trial, and instead of calling upon God, what they do is they run, or they're tempted to run to Egypt for help. And Egypt is, in the Old Testament, the place of godless help. And so, so Abram, he, he, he hits this famine, and he's, he doesn't go back to where he built the altar to the Lord. He doesn't go back to walking by faith through the land. He runs to the place of godless help, and he, and he runs to Egypt. It's what so many of us will do when we're young in the faith. We don't know what else to do. You run back, or you run to the place of godless help. And so when he's about to enter Egypt, he says to Sarai, his wife, 
I know you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. They'll kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. Listen to that. That it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, and the princes of Pharaoh saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Here's Abram. Now I want you to not judge Abraham right away. We'll get to that later. But perhaps this is what Abram's thinking. Abram is thinking out of the flesh. He's thinking like the idol worshiper he was, right, beyond the river. And he gets to this land. He's already freaked out because he's gone to the place of godless help. And he's thinking possibly in in, in in my old country, which is true, in my old country, if there was no dad around and you wanted to marry the daughter, you would go to the brother, And you'd work out and negotiate terms with the brother. And so Abram's thinking, well, my old country, that's what happened. So if you say you're my sister, which was kind of true, she was his half-sister, then they won't just kill me. They'll have to deal with me as your brother. And I'll just say, ah, that bride price isn't high enough. And maybe he's thinking, but he is not thinking of Sarai. He's thinking of his own skin, right? And he miscalculates because Pharaoh doesn't negotiate, Pharaoh takes. Right? That's the thing about Egypt, right? Egypt is this place of godless help, and you think you can negotiate with Egypt? And Egypt is like, no, I will be your master. And so Pharaoh takes her into his house, and, and here's, and so Abram is just there now, and he's, He's now in the land. He's lost his wife. He's lost everything. He's, he's kicked out of the land. He's not in the land. God will show him he's in Egypt. And, and, and here's the thing. We would like to think that when we're saved, we'd like to think that when we become a Christian, like I said, that straight line of sanctification suddenly transforms our mind and we start thinking like a saint immediately. And yet we see here, you don't start thinking like a saint immediately when God saves you. That's the process of sanctification. You still, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by soaking and saturating under the teaching of God's word, by the, by the illumination of his spirit. Then you begin thinking and having the mind of Christ. Abram's not there yet, and so he's reacting in a fleshly way. And in a wicked way. He's thinking like a man of his time. Look at, you know, what he said there was, my life will preserve for your sake. They'll deal well with me through you, Sarai. And he's thinking like a man of his time where he's thinking that the honor and preservation of his wife, Sarah, were of lesser importance of his own honor and preservation. He's a patriarchal patriarch. And he's lived his life for so long in the ways of the people of Ur, but he's only just started this life of faith. If his mind had been fully transformed, if he were trained in the ways of God, he he would have understood that when God promised him, I will make you a great nation, that included, that promise to Abram, had to have included his wife Sarai. If he had been trained in the scripture or whatever he would have had of them, he would have known that when God created humanity, he created them male and female, and he created the woman to be a complementary completer, a helpmeet unto the man. He said, it's not good that the man will be alone, and he created woman to come alongside of him to fulfill the creation mandate of filling the earth and subduing it. If he would have been trained in the mind of Christ, he would have known that God made the promise, although the, although the apple came to Adam through Eve, redemption of Adam's race would come through the seed of the woman. And so he would have known that when God promised he would be the great nation, which means an expansion of his family, as a married man, that promise is not made to himself alone. It would have been through Sarah. And we see this again and again in Abram's life, that he does not understand the full implication of the promise of God in his family. 
And, and listen, like kids, praise the Lord for your Christian parents who God has saved. But when they were bringing you up, he may not have yet sanctified And there may have been people in your life who hurt you who even claim to be Christian, but they're still thinking in the ways of Babylon, of Samaria. And you say, how could they have hurt me like that and then said that they were Christian? It's not about this. Listen, God saves the unlikeliest of people and reaches his grace into the unlikeliest of families God, yes, calls us to complete and utter separation from the past into his new path, but yet this process of sanctification takes time. And so God does what Abram can't do. God and what Abram doesn't do. And what Abram in his wickedness still, even as he's walking in God's ways he's still a man of faith and a man of failings but God does hear what Abram does not and God protects and preserves Sarai his wife the Lord afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai Abram's wife and Pharaoh called Abram and said what have you done to me why didn't you tell me that she was your wife why did you say she's my sister so I took her for my wife here's your wife take her and go And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And Abram went up from Negev, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. It goes on to speak about at the beginning of chapter 13 that Abraham has actually become an enriched man through this journey into Egypt. What? It doesn't seem to be fair. God enriches Abram in Egypt even as Abram's doing this crazy thing with his wife. Abram deserves none of this. At the end of this chapter, he's back in the land of promise, back with his wife that he should have lost, with more wealth than when he started. Than when he started. There, this is... This is the life of Abraham is nothing but grace at every step along the way. And, and this is the thing we're going to have to wrestle with. This is the thing that we're going to have to wrestle with, with with every chapter in Genesis. And this is the thing that each of us is going to have to wrestle with with every chapter of every trial in our life. And this is going to be the hardest message for us to get. And that's why we're going to do this for the next six months. We are going to have to wrestle with that God uses what we intend for evil, even as he is intending to bring about good from it. We have to wrestle with the sovereign providence of God in our life and in our families. Not excusing sin and wickedness. This does not excuse sin or wickedness. It is a picture of God's sovereign grace. And for some of us, it's going to be so hard to wrestle with, we're going to have to take six or eight months to wrestle with it. This is not excusing evil. It recognizes evil. It names evil. It experiences and proclaims that there will be temporary consequences of evil choices. Yet, in the hope of Genesis is that evil and wickedness and suffering and dysfunction and all else can be redeemed. Because we serve a glorious God, we serve a sovereign God, and his purposes are never thwarted, and his promises are often drawn straight, even through crooked sticks. And this is good news. It means that God is still working out his purposes in you, Christian, when you do boneheaded things. He's working out his purposes in us when we're doing, when we do despicable things. It means that his grace is waiting to redeem even our messes, even as he calls us continually to transformation and to break from the life that we once knew. We're not yet who we will be. But that doesn't make the call to discipleship and holiness any less non-negotiable. 
man, this is a hard thing to preach. It's a hard thing to understand. It's a hard thing to go in front of a, a people like you and say, put aside the past and walk in the faith that the God of the future is leading you. And to say, look, when you mess up, he's still going to make something out of it for his own purpose and his own glory. I don't know how to put those two things in my mind together. And that's my hope as we go through this series, is that we, we try to figure this out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that, that, that you will impress that upon us as we, as we work through these difficult chapters. That we wrestle with questions of injustice, <laughs> even as we wrestle with questions of grace. That we, that we wrestle against the sin in ourselves, even as we are so, so thankful that you can make something beautiful out of our messes. We thank you that you are a victoriously sovereign God. We thank you for the faith you have given us to walk in. We thank you for victory when it comes. God, we have to somehow thank you even for the failings. That, that when we see the hurt that we cause others or that has been caused by us because of sin, we do not despair, but we see, God, that somehow your purposes can work through that too. And I don't know if our minds are big enough to receive this. I don't know if our souls are big enough to receive this. But I, I pray, God, that, that you lead us into this as we walk forward by faith. Help us. Help us, Lord. And Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for healing of any who have suffered hurt, particularly at the hands of their family. I pray for redemption. I pray for forgiveness. I pray for repentance. I pray for reconciliation. Because you are the God who makes all things new. For your purpose, by your plan, for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Whew. We don't understand this God we worship. We, his ways are higher than our ways. But man, that, what, that is what makes him a God worthy of our worship. It, to come before him and say, God, I don't get this what you're doing in my life, I don't get this, how you can work good from evil, but God, you are worthy because your ways are higher than my ways. So we're going to go into a time of, of just singing and worshiping.